Good evening again, or good evening. <laughs> uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at that today, to this evening. Again, it's been good to be with you uh, today and uh, worship with you this morning and this evening. And I really want to thank uh, the congregation for having me out, the elders for having me out, and also want to thank uh, Jerry and Monica for hosting Cheryl and me. Your hospitality is really great, and we really appreciate that a lot. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 17. Let's hear God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, excuse me, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I encourage you to keep your Bible open or have the scriptures before you, whatever form you have it there. As we look at this passage, can you imagine the scene? I do. I imagine... John uh, coming out of the wilderness with his fiery message and being there at the Jordan River and the people flocking to hear him. And to me, it uh, reminds me of really uh, what sometimes happens at revivals and uh, tent meetings and crusades and things like that. Certainly, uh, some of what happens there is of God and some not, but it really reminds me of stories you hear about people who maybe were walking along the street and there was a tent revival and they, they went in 
or somebody who uh, maybe their their family is saying, you've got to come here, this evangelist, and they just didn't want to go at all. And, and then finally, they just seemed compelled. Or maybe even that they were sitting there uh, in the back of the building and and there was a call given to come forward to, to make a decision for Christ or to represent your commitment to Christ. And they almost felt just pulled forward. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, even though certainly what was happening with John the Baptist was unique, I believe that it truly is a typical, a representative of how God sometimes works uh, in revivals. And I don't mean just tent revivals, but I mean in the way uh, God begins to work in people's hearts. And uh, sometimes in that kind of a setting, God does many uh, great works of grace in people's hearts. So as John uh, is coming there, as we look at this, John the Baptist coming out, Preaching. We looked today at the earlier today at the genealogy of Jesus, and we skipped up to chapter three now. And so the story uh, has already begun, but the story is getting exciting now in chapter three. And John uh, is coming as the fulfillment, as as it says here, of Isaiah forty verse three. That's what's in uh, parentheses there, or in the in the bolder text in your. Passage, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew comments on what John is saying and doing. He says, this is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. That quote is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And John says, prepare the way. He says, get ready. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is on the horizon. The kingdom of heaven, God's reign God's rule of righteousness. Throughout the book of Matthew, uh, the kingdom of heaven is spoken of at least 30 times. Other gospels use the, the kingdom of God, but the same thing. In Matthew, 30 times talks about the kingdom of heaven or uses that word more than 30 times. Matthew's gospel then is an exposition of the king, of why the king has come, of what the king requires of his servants, of how the kingdom is going to work itself out in the world, of its expansion, its consummation. And John was very much like Elijah, as was prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah appeared. And John was fulfilling this prophecy also. He appeared suddenly on the scene as Elijah does a couple times in the Old Testament scriptures. And he also dressed like Elijah in clothes that were rough clothing. 2 Kings 1.6, Elijah, many days, many, many years after, I think, the time of the uh, confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, my, uh, Elijah appears to a servant, uh, not King Ahab's servant, but another king later on, and the servant comes back and reports to the king. And the king said, who, who was it that gave you this message? And what did he look like? And he described uh, this man, the way he dressed. And the king said, that's Elijah. That was. So Elijah appears suddenly. I mean, John the Baptist appears suddenly. He's got this rough clothing, not what kings wear in palaces or high society. Not someone who would normally be drawn people would normally be drawn to. And yet the crowds came, as you see there 
in uh, verse 5. They came from Jerusalem, from the capital city. They came out to the Jordan. They came from the region of Judea. And they also came from the region around the Jordan, or the, probably the east of Jordan. So the crowds flocked there to hear John the Baptist. They came and they were baptized and they confessed their sins. They were hungry for John's message. They were fearful of the judgment and they longed for the salvation that the Messiah Christ would bring. Many responded then to John's word. What an exciting time it was. What an amazing thing was going on. Well, this evening we want to think particularly about the response for which John called the thing that he demanded of the people in the name of of God. And that is his words, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repentance uh, mean? Is repentance still a requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question number 87, uh, what is repentance unto life? answers that question this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension or laying hold of and understanding the mercy of God in Christ, a sinner doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose after and endeavor with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience there's a lot there i think a lot of you know that but it's a beautiful description of repentance it's a very wonderful biblical description number 87 in the westminster shorter catechism it's a wonderful definition and our study tonight of this passage uh, will bear out that definition. We won't go into all the details of the definition, but this evening I want you to look with me at four characteristics of uh, repentance that we see here in this passage that we've read. And I'll just give you real quickly the four that we're going to look at and then enlarge on them as we go along. Repentance is foundational. Repentance is directional. Repentance is productive, and repentance is connected. Foundational, directional, productive, and connected. We'll enlarge on these as we go. May John's uh, message speak to each one of us today, and may we respond as we should. As I'm thinking about repentance, uh, maybe later as we're having uh, prayer time, we have a prayer time later, I might just share uh, when I repented. Might be appropriate tonight. But back to the text. (laughs) Repentance is foundational. So that's our first point. Repentance is foundational. It's foundational for entering the kingdom of God. This is quite clear from uh, verses 2 and 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this person, John the Baptist, is the one who is spoken of by the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John is preparing for the coming of Christ. He's preparing for the kingdom of God 
And the foundation he's laying, or the message of preparation is repent. This is what he's saying. And I think we all understand the illustration there that's given in Isaiah. The road is being prepared, this road in the wilderness. It's the rocks are being taken out of the way. The ruts are being filled. Uh, the ditches in the side are protected. The foundation is being established. John is preparing the way for the king to come. And the way he's preparing it is to call people to repentance. So repentance is foundational to entering the kingdom of God. We say you must be born again. Uh, we might say also you must repent to enter the kingdom of God. A little later in the gospel, we find Jesus uh, beginning his preaching in Galilee in Matthew 4:17, And notice that Jesus repeats pretty much exactly the same words. Matthew 4:17. from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if uh, the repentance was preparatory only, why is Jesus still saying, repent, as the kingdom is arriving. Why is Jesus still preaching repentance if it's only preparatory? It is preparatory, but it's preparatory for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, or foundational. That's why I'm using the term foundational. Repentance is foundation for, for entering the kingdom of God. It's always necessary at every point in kingdom development. Had the kingdom arrived, that's... That's maybe a question we ask. Now that Jesus is here, has the kingdom arrived in, in this text? And there's one sense yes and one sense no. When Jesus was born, that's, you could say, the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. And when he begins his ministry, that's also part of this beginning. John's preparing and the kingdom's coming as Jesus now begins his, his ministry. But Jesus was going to live on earth for three years, and he was going to... Uh, live his life and uh, do his service and his ministry. Uh, God was going to be working through him all that time while he was there. So, so in a sense, the kingdom was still uh, happening and being fulfilled at that time. And ultimately, it really might, you might say it was really inaugurated. The kingdom, in, in one sense, was really inaugurated when, with Jesus' death and with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it's at that point that he uh, is raised from the dead and he gets ready to leave the earth and he says to his disciples, go and preach the gospel to all nations. And it's still a message of repentance even then. And it will continue to be a, repentance, a message of repentance until the day that Christ returns on judgment. This is the time of repent. This is the time for repentance. This is the day of salvation, as the scriptures said. And as the disciples went out to preach the gospel, did they stop saying repent? No. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he uh, reflected back on his ministry, Paul the Apostle, in Acts 20, when he was speaking to the elders from Ephesus, do you remember what he said? He said, I taught in public and in private, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and for faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So until the second coming of Christ, repentance will all, always be foundational along with faith as we enter the kingdom of God. 
until the very last day, repentance will remain that. No one can come to God without sincere sorrow for sin and and a genuine desire for new obedience. Repentance goes deep. Repentance was and is and always foundational to salvation. Like the humble believers baptized in the Jordan River, every one of us should repent, confess our sins, and turn back to God. Repentance is foundational. Secondly, repentance is directional. What do I mean by that? Repentance is directional. What I'm thinking of, it shows us which way to run to escape God's wrath, the anger of God against sin that we uh, just uh, were memorizing, Romans 6.23. Repentance is the way we run from God's wrath to God's mercy. If God's wrath is here, repentance is fleeing to his mercy, his mercy in Christ, as we'll talk about in a minute or two. In uh, we see this especially in verse 7. John says, as he sees the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming out uh, to hear him, and apparently it seemed like to be baptized, coming to his baptism in verse 7, John says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? One writer has suggested that John out in the wilderness had seen broods of snakes uh, scurrying for their holes in the rocks when a fire came across the wilderness. So he sees these snakes, these vipers, these Pharisees and the Sadducees, scurrying away from the wrath of God. Many of the leaders, as we know, of the Jewish people at that time were hypocrites, were legalists, were liars, were manipulators, these Sadducees and Pharisees, not all. Many were greedy and self-righteous and so forth. And so the ones who came here surely were not coming to learn and repent, most of them, that they were coming to investigate and interrogate what's going on with this fellow who's come out of the wilderness. Who does he think he is? He's not really a prophet of God. The New Testament makes clear that these people had no more love for John the Baptist than they did for Jesus. Matthew 11, you remember Jesus said, John came and you said, oh, he's too austere. And Jesus came and said, oh, he's he's too much with sinners. They didn't like either one, no matter what extreme they found or side they found of a prophet of God. Many of these people felt they were plenty good enough as they were. They needed no repentance. And John addresses this in in verse 9. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham, to Abraham. Maybe even you might be saying, I have a religious pedigree. I know the truth. I read the Bible. I go to church. I'm a believer. I'm not like other people. No, all of us are sinners before God. All are in danger of God's wrath to come until we repent, confess, and turn away from our sins. Like the tax collector in Jesus' parable who was at the temple, we must say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wherever we grow up, whoever we are, we all must come to that point of sincere repentance and commitment 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said of him, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other man who prayed uh, more to God of his righteousness. For everyone who exalts himself, Jesus said, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 9 through 14. In verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, Jesus uses the word fire three times. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you, John, John does. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to, to uh, I'm sorry, I wanted to start back at uh, earlier than that. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So there's the first use of fire. And then in verse 11, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So when John says that Jesus will baptize with uh, the Holy Spirit in fire, what's he talking about? You know, certainly we understand with the Holy Spirit. And we might think fire, to me, it reminds us of the tongues of fire over the apostles' heads on the day of Pentecost, the symbol of the Holy Spirit and the fervor and the zeal that he was bringing and the power into the lives of the Christians. But in the context, I think it's pretty clear that the fire it's talking about is the judgment, because before it's saying uh, that the, you know, the ones who don't produce fruit are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, and then the winnowing fork is the hand, and they're going to separate the wheat from the chaff and throw the chaff into the fire. And so it seems pretty clear to me that what the baptism he's talking about is both the filling of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people, but also the judgment that comes for those who do not repent and those who do not respond to the Holy Spirit. Repentance is so important. The Bible says in Romans 1 that God is even now revealing his punishment of sin in the world today. And that is true, and that happens in our lives, and that happens around the world. God is even now punishing the world for its sins. And Christians are not completely free from that discipline that comes even upon them. Peter says if it starts with the household of God, doesn't he? But surely the wrath of God will be unleashed on that judgment day against all godliness and all unrighteousness when Christ comes again. Every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due him or her for the deeds done in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Repentance is so important because it is the direction that we must flee from God's judgment. Have you really repented? Have you really understood that you're a sinner? Have you really uh, fled to God's mercy, away from God's wrath? Have you realized the judgment of sin that's on every one of us who have turned away from God? The way to flee is through repenting. Repentance is the direction to flee from God's wrath. The third thing we notice then is that repentance is productive. It's foundational, it's directional, and it's productive. That's our third point that we wanted to think about. And we see this in verses 8 through 10. As 
John is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. What he says certainly applies in some sense to all of us, as, as he says there in verse, in, beginning in verse 8. Let's go back to verse 8. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is productive. It bears fruit. Fruit that is consistent with repentance. Fruit that is correspondent with repentance. Fruit that is appropriate to repentance. Fruit that demonstrates our repentance. As I say, John is speaking here to the Pharisees and Sadducees. But righteous fruit is a requirement of all sincere repentance. You may remember in Luke's gospel that those who are being baptized uh, say to John, well, what is it we should repent of? Or give us some specifics. And John gave specifics. He applied repentance to each one's situation or each one's vocation. Share with those less fortunate than you. Be honest in your financial dealings. Don't lie or threaten people. And be content with what you have. These are specifics that are representative of other requirements, other commands of God. What would John say to you today? In what areas has God been speaking to you about your life? Is there a nagging voice telling you to address a particular sin, to seek to overcome a continuing habit, a regular failing, a gross inconsistency with your profession of faith? Have you resisted that voice to the point that it's almost become inaudible in your, in your ears? Is it time to go to a friend to go to a spouse, to go to an elder, to go to a pastor and confess this sin and seek help in overcoming it. The urgency of repentance is brought out in Matthew 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Would that be true of you? This is a picture of judgment on those who appear to be Israelites, appear to be Christians, but give no evidence really of truly believing and living as Christians. Jesus said something very similar in John 15, 1 and 2. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is frightening and warns each of us to examine ourselves. But there's comfort, too, in verse 2 of John 15. And every branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Perhaps many, if not most of us, are Christians. And yet as Christians who are weak and inconsistent in many ways and need change in our lives, we know, all of us know who are Christians at times, when God has chastened us, when God has disciplined, when God has reached into our lives and, 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 and used that work, done that work, that knife-like pruning, that life-like, knife-like pruning process. Hebrews 12 says, do not resist that discipline. Do not become weary of the Lord's discipline. 
The chastisement is not a sign of rejection, but an indication that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that they may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We will never stop needing to repent. Even late in life, we find there are many things that we need to turn away from. There are areas that God continues to speak to us about. We're never, we never stop needing to repent and to experience God's forgiving mercy and his grace, enabling grace until the day we die. Repentance is that also. The fourth and last statement about repentance that we want to look at tonight is that repentance is connective. Wish I could have put these all in a nice group of words that sound the same and ended the same, but I just wasn't able to do that. But the word I'm thinking of here is repentance is connective. Uh, real repentance always comes in conjunction with faith in Jesus Christ. It's futile to repent without faith in Christ. It must always be connected to and accompanied by faith. You may ask, and I haven't really touched on it much, but I think I should at least touch on this, which comes first, faith or repentance? And uh, You know, that's a hard question, but uh, generally we understand that faith precedes repentance. And uh, if you actually look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's how it comes, faith first, repentance second. And why is that? I, I, I believe at least a way of answering that is to say, in order to truly repent and hope for God's mercy, you have to have some sense of faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I'm particularly emphasizing tonight is that real repentance always comes in conjunction with faith in Christ. It's futile without faith in Christ. It must always be connected to, accompanied by faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe a way to picture this is if you saw a cartoon or something, and we've probably all seen this kind of cartoon where uh, the character is holding onto a rope or he's in some kind of danger and he grabs onto a rope and it's coming down from somewhere and he thinks he's safe, but then whatever, all of a sudden you see the whole rope just drops to the floor. It wasn't tied to anything. And so maybe that's a bit of an illustration of how repentance without Jesus Christ is futile and hopeless and will do us no good. But where is that in this passage? Where do we see that faith has to be connected with repentance? Well, uh, first of all, it's implicit throughout this passage. John's whole purpose, as we've already said, was to prepare the way for Christ. So, of course, repentance is tied to this coming one. There's no question about it. But secondly, in the midst of John's called repentance in verse 11, we've already read this, but let's read it again. John points to the one who's coming and shows that the one who's coming's baptism is a little different or beyond what John is doing. It's beyond repentance. And the one who's coming is mightier than John. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John, right there, speaks again about the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit, who Christ pours out upon believers, who Jesus sent to be the continuing 
comforter, his presence in the world. Only the Holy Spirit can wash and regenerate and sanctify us. So John's preparing the way for Jesus. Repentance is always connected with Jesus. John says that the one who's coming it goes beyond repentance or still repentance that Jesus is going to preach, but it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that people are going to receive from Jesus that truly does sanctify and change and regenerate. But also, in verse 13, this mightier one comes on the scene. And so we see how repentance is so connected. Jesus has come from Galilee to the Jordan, verse 13 says, to John to be baptized of him. John wants to prevent him. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. We're left not with mere repentance, are we? But we're introduced to the Savior. Even John the Baptist needed the spiritual baptism. And he recognized that. He said, I need to be baptized by you. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the transitional Elijah, knew that Jesus Christ, who was his cousin, was also his Savior. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of his people, from his willingness here to undergo water baptism, even though he needed no cleansing from sin. He fulfilled all righteousness by, during his life, keeping God's moral law perfectly. And he fulfilled all righteousness by becoming the final sacrifice for sin, the eternal sacrifice for sin, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who was baptized here with water, and the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was there, equipped, as I understand it, for his work by the Holy Spirit as he was baptized there. He was filled with the Holy Spirit to give his fullness to us. Repentance itself is not enough. John prepared the way for Jesus Christ. He directed men's eyes toward Jesus. Our best efforts of repentance are not enough to make us right with God. Without Christ, we would all perish in God's wrath. But in him, our repentance is effective and life-giving. There's a kind of sorrow, the Bible says, or a kind of repentance that does not bring life. 2 Corinthians 7.10. In the context, Paul's talking about uh, actually repentance that doesn't really lead to change. And yet I think there's a deeper meaning there. There is a kind of sorrow for sin that a person can have. And a, a kind of outward repentance that maybe we don't even completely understand. But it only leads to regret. It only leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 for God, says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
That sorrow for sin is a kind that never looks beyond itself to the Savior. We need to repent, but it's all connected with Christ. We need to look toward the one that John was proclaiming, that John was, for whom John was preparing the way. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ must always go together for them to be real repentance and real faith. Is this the experience of your life? Do you know Christ? Have you followed Christ? Have you put your trust in Christ? And are you daily confessing and repenting your sins, seeking his forgiveness and his strength to live the Christian life? He's a great Savior. He's a wonderful God. He's one that helps us in all parts of our lives. Repentance is foundational for entering the kingdom of heaven. Repent and be saved. Repentance is directional, showing us which way to run to escape the wrath of God. Run to the Savior from sin and its consequences. Be reconciled to your creator. Enjoy his friendship and love. Repentance is productive in bearing the corresponding fruit of godliness. Don't just talk a good game. By God's grace and in his strength, play it. Repentance is connective, always coming in conjunction with faith in God's Son. Do not stop stop short of forgiveness in Christ, of mercy and grace, of renewed fellowship with the Father. So we can still cry today, as John did long ago, to ourselves and to the whole wide world, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's join in prayer. Again, Father in heaven, it's a remarkable uh, book that you've given us, the Bible, and it's a remarkable gospel, this one of Matthew. Thank you for the way it's organized and the things it tells us. And thank you for this wonderful and beautiful story, an exciting story of John, the Elijah of the New Testament, coming forward and proclaiming repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. Thank you that your son quickly and soon followed. Thank you that he brought to us our salvation. Lord, we thank you for John, and we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with your spirit tonight. Fill us each one, young and old. Lord, work in our hearts. Give us the repentance that leads to life and joy and happiness. Give us the strength to address the sins in our lives. Help us to find help from one another where that's a good thing. Lord, help us to confess our sins to one another. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.